Um, yesterday, what I did was introduce a larger framework to think about Hellenism and Judaism and the relationship between those categories. Um, provocatively, playfully, kind of um, uh, problematizing this idea of Hellenism and Judaism as extreme and instead introducing to you an account perhaps that Judaism and Hellenism were integrated in a number of different ways um, in, in the period of what's called late antiquity or antiquity and late antiquity in the Greco-Roman world. Today, um, I want to take a step back um, and I want to think a little bit about a Jewish community in the diaspora that can't read Hebrew texts and what it means to make accessible um, the texts of, of our tradition, the interpretations of our tradition, as well as the necessary implications that come along with the translation, which is radical transformation. Um, Yehuda Halevi, um, the medieval poet and philosopher, who you're most familiar with, I would imagine, the Kuzari, wrote what I think is one of the most beautiful essays on the trans, um, on, um, about, um, sorry, um, um, let me back up for a second. Um, Yehuda Halevi wrote beautiful, um, beautiful poetry and um, transformed biblical texts, especially did a whole series on Siam. Um, on the loss of Zion and, um, and the memorialization of Zion, which incorporates and um, plays with biblical texts as a kind of midrash. Um, so Franz Rosenzweig did a piece on, not just, many of you know that Buber and Rosenzweig worked on the translation of the Hebrew into German for a German community and wanted to do for um, the Old Testament what what the Lutheran Bible did for the Christian community in Germany. And it was very important in the context of a community that wasn't literate to try to figure out how to teach German to speak Hebrew in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, he also, Franz Rosenzweig, also wrote about what Yehuda Halevi did to biblical texts in, in his poetry and in his prayer. And in that context, talked about imperfection with respect to translation. All you can do is approximate the beauty. You can't repeat the beauty. And this is an ongoing debate with what the Buber Rosenzweig translation into German was. Some of you might know the work of Everett Fox, who tried to do this a bunch of years ago, a little over a decade ago, which I don't think perfectly succeeded, but he was trying to capture in English, right, um, what Buber and Rosenzweig tried to do in German. Why am I spending all of this time thinking with you about how translation operated in a German Jewish community or in English? Jewish community, it's because these are the challenges that are as old, are as old and as ancient as um, our own community is. And this already comes up in Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 8, when it's pretty clear that the people don't really understand, that Chazal already understood Nehemiah um, Aleph through Chat, 1 through 8, to be about a kind of translation from Hebrew into Aramaic in an inspired way. They apply insights so that they can understand. What kind of explanation, what kind of translation was operative in this context? This is a story that's as old as our communities are when they're living in the midst um, of other people. So translation, of course, is necessary, but especially if the lingua franca is not Hebrew. Right, the challenge is really going to be rendering our texts accessible so they can be practiced, so they can be actualized. And the most important word 
you know, in my in my mind for this class today is vitality. Um, it's the way in which these texts continue to be alive and present, active in the French actuellement, right? To to render them accessible and uh, present and alive to the community around them. And it's in that context I want to think with you about translation. I started yesterday very briefly to think with you, what is translation? Is translation um, just, is it a movement, you know, from point A to point B? You know, if I tell you that, you know, Ab is father and Aim is mother? Or is there something else that's happening in the context of a translation into a different linguistic register, a different culture? So if I tell you that Moses is a nomos thetes, a lawgiver, a law placer. He's likened, right, not to Hammurabi's law code from the ancient Near East, but he's likened to Solon and Lycurgus. So, you know, in a context, we, when we talk about someone as a hero, you know, or someone as a god, I mean, to think about some of the current idiom, you know, um, with, you know, with, with, with children or young adults today, you know, how we translate that and how we make it meaningful has a lot to do with the cultural context in which we in which we live. Um, there are many examples actually that are floating around in my head. Yes, of course. Hold on. Uh, we have more things. Yeah, thank you. Uh, someone else just came in also. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Um, okay, so I'm going to use the same pattern that I used um, that I used yesterday, um, which is I'm going to give a quasi-formal presentation and introduce you to a lot of the concepts that I'm thinking about. And then in the last half hour or 45 minutes, it might be a little, a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on your excellent questions. Um, um, I'd like us to read some of the, um, the the main sources about about translation. That is about translation um, of the Greek into the Hebrew. Um, before I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. Um, so before we get we get there, let's um, let's take a look. Um, let's take a look at, um, at the handout that you have. And part of what I've done in this handout is I've tried to set up a kind of guide for you as I work through my presentation today, a bit of an outline, to kind of help you think through the central points that I'm making. You know, again, about 85% of us were here yesterday. Um, it's fair game to ask me to try to integrate the work that I did yesterday about Hokma and Sophia, and more generally, wisdom traditions that are um, contingent historically, right, that they're transformed in the context of culture and history together with what I'm trying to do today about translation. And all of this to kind of get back to the meta, the meta uh, question before I turn specifically to the matter of translation is to think with me and with Professor Noam about the ways in which Hellenism and Judaism are both kind of pushed back as extremes and integrated as part of a new culture as Judaism survives. Um, whenever I talk about this question of translation, I often begin, not always, but often begin with the story of the Dalai Lama asking rabbinic leaders in the context, and you've heard this as well, right, in the context of, um, of, of horror and the destruction and the murder of, of his monks um, and his people and his culture, and the answer was about uh, the rabbi, the rabbinic leadership that he appealed to was about textuality and about preservation and about reading. That very French word I used a few minutes ago, actuellement, right? To actualize, to, to render vital a tradition even in a place of loss or even in dislocation. And as you know, even Israel in the hands of in the hands of mystics later will be referred to as Atra de Lo Atra, a place that is not a place. 
And even in that space, in the absence of the central place, the tradition survives itself. It's a very interesting narrative, and it's, it's in that sense I think I want us to be sympathetic to my narrative about translation. I want us to think together about what it is, not as one-to-one correspondence, but as a complete cultural transformation which is vulnerable to the very thing Nisan couldn't come today, but the very thing that was quoted by Rabbi Riskin by Nisan yesterday about you know um, Greek as otherness and dangerous and corrupt, um, and also um, the other as an opportunity to think and to rethink Judaism and keep it alive and perpetuate itself. Permit me one more tangent. Um, I'm thinking also, the other thing I thought, I thought about today on my way in, um, um, I really Connecticut. So on my way in, I was thinking about, uh, I don't know how much you know about Greek philosophy, but the different schools, um, and I think even Mary Noam was talking a little bit about this in her classes, the Stoa, right, Stoa philosophy or Platonist. And you might know that Platonism deeply kind of continued. It continued to be relevant, and one might even argue that people get come up to Carmen Cone and towards the end of my, my formal presentation. So it's worthwhile saying that Neo-Kantianism, of the traditions that the that Ralph Soloveitchik engaged in his philosophical work continues to be part of that platonic tradition in very deep and complicated ways. Um, Stoicism did not continue. And my colleagues who worked in Stoicism have said to me, they didn't know my work. They said, or really much about our tradition, but they, they failed to teach. They failed to perpetuate. They failed to do the very thing that the wisdom literature we looked at yesterday talks about with respect to perpetuation because of the necessity of innovation in the next generation. The language of Hidush, the language of innovation, which of course also happens in the context of translation. It's not possible to repeat in a wooden way correspondence. Even if you try to capture the breath and the spirit, you will transform, translate, and really create something very new. Um, okay, so, kind of. So, um, I, I call this translating cultures across linguistic divides, the making of the Septuagint. Um, we'll talk another time, perhaps, about the Septuagint and the Greek Bible. It takes a long time before we have what we might call the Septuagint. But my, pre my presentation today first explores what's distinctive about Philo of Alexandria's account of the authoritative translation of Greek scriptures. Philo of Alexandria, someone was asking some historical questions yesterday. And it's important to just mention he lived in the first century before the Common Era. We know that he lived until 38 because he went on the embassy to Gaius Caligula to protect the people, the, the Jewish community in Alexandria. And he spent quite a bit of time in Rome. So we know this. People give approximate, um, and, and he did not live or doesn't talk about the Horvath. Or he doesn't talk about what went on in the 60s and ultimately in 70 CE in the way that Josephus says, right? Anticipate and live through it. So we know that he probably lived until about 50 or so CE. Um, overlapping with someone like Paul of Tarsus, but never met. There's no evidence that while Philo was rendering universal Judaism, right, he was rendering it universal and having it speak to Greek communities, that he was also he wasn't advocating for a radical um, abrogation of the law in the way that Paul describes in his own writings. Philo was a Jew who wrote four essays on the special laws. He's deeply, deeply engaged with what we would call um, early 
Jewish interpretation. Many of the interpretations that are embedded in his work um, um, also find their way into normative Midrashic texts. Um, no, someone no less than Samuel Belkin wrote two volumes called Midrashic Philem, the Midrashim of Philo. Um, Naomi Cohn, very much in that, um, in that line of thought, and I think she's actually spent some time um, in Prisha from time to time. She wrote many, many volumes, um, many, many books about tracing these deep connections between Philo and Chazal. Um, not unlike someone like Larry Schiffman has traced deep halachic connections between the Dead Sea Scrolls and Chazal. Um, it's a certain kind of project, right? It, it has a trajectory. Um, and an agenda, but I say this because he's absolutely Jewish, absolutely deeply committed to law. His idea of translation is not to give it all up. I mean, I think this is a very fair question. Is he giving it all up in order to enable the very thing that the text I quoted yesterday from Tankhulma is worried about, right? Is that you give up um, a lot through translation by giving your text to another culture. Do you lose your rights to it? This is what Chazal ultimately worried about with respect to the claims that Christianity made on our own tradition. Okay, so this is it, it, it's a great question, and I want to say that everything's at stake. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. So let's um, let's think a little bit um, more about Philo. So I want to consider Philo's Philo's account of the authoritative translation of Greek scriptures, and I want to consider the process of translation that he describes and the product of translation in all of its perfection, and I use that word heavily, not lightly. And finally, Philo's prophetic hopes for the impact that this translate can be in a time when the rabbis tell us that prophecy is over, right? Misha metu Chagai Zachari and Malachi, Paska, Nebuah Yisrael. After Chagai Zachari and Malachi died, um, prophecy was removed or interrupted. I mean, there's a lot to say about what's going on in that text in Tosefta Sota. Um, 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 and it, it, this comes up elsewhere, right? Prophecy being in the mouths of fools or in the mouths of babes, right? But what is that claim and what happens to prophecy? You might say, didn't you say yesterday that prophecy, um, that, that prophecy is somehow deferred by Chokmah, which is a kind of replacement? I don't think prophecy dies, I think prophecy is sustained. And it's sustained, it's sustained through a kind of transformation, but not through a normative prophet not to a band of prophets. That this is, again, the, the argument that I'm making, which one could, one could charge me with a certain kind of apologetics, that the spirit doesn't die to Judaism, but it's transformed. Right, so this is, again, a kind of counterclaim to um, some of the stuff we talked about yesterday. So the differences between the versions is something I want us to consider a little bit during the Chavrusa session this afternoon. Um, I only have prepared three um, of the versions for you, the full version. So what, what is the version I'm talking about is the story of the translation. And you might say, the story of the translation, why don't you just give me one? Give me one version. And it's really important to know that just like, for example, we were talking about Hanukkah yesterday, the version, the story about Hannah and her seven sons, sometimes called Maryam, or Miriam and her seven sons, comes up a number of different times with different iterations. The world of narrative and midrash is not interested in just the facts, ma'am. It's interested in retelling narratives and rethinking implications for stories. The historical question, if you want me to talk about it, I'll talk about it on the side. But what I'm interested in are the different ways in which the story of translation is depicted, even within Chazal, the different ways in which the story of translation is told. 
in, in, in antiquity, there are four different accounts we have. Aristobulus, which is very fragmented, which I'm not prepared for you. The full, the full account of Philo, which um, I've prepared for you. Josephus' version, which is different, and the letter of Arisius. The most radical version is Philo's. And this is why I'm focusing on it today. We're going to look at other atonements. He's the only one, as you'll see in a few minutes, who talks about the translation as itself a miracle no less than Ma'asad Rishi, no less than the creation of the world. So the differences between these versions have been addressed extensively um, in a number of different works, which I'm happy to share with you. But what I believe has not been done, so here what I'm sharing with you today, I think is really new work. And I want to say that what hasn't been done is an account of what's different about Philo's story about the translation of the Septuagint in his own terms. How does Philo's theory of the status and the importance of Torah Moshe, the law of Moses, help us to shape his distinctive version of the translation? And what are the implications, and this is my, my meta question, for cultural symbiosis, which is of course what I talked about yesterday with respect to wisdom. Right? So how is this working out in a larger view of what's going on in, between Judaism and Hellenism in the first century, before the Common Era, in the face of impending doom? Everyone's freaking out. Right? They're all, this is the time when the world of apocalypse is born. Um, because the Jews are waiting for a fulfillment of Yeshayahu's promises and everything seems to be at risk. Everyone could see, I mean, to quote Daniel, the writing on the wall um, of what was going to happen. Okay? Okay. So central to ancient Judaism is the idea that Ma'amad Har Sinai, revelation to Moshe at Sinai, is at once both unique and hence uniquely authoritative and repeatable, hence renewable. Um, and I thought about this a little bit in some of my earlier work, in my first book certainly, where I talked a little bit about this concept of mosaic discourse. Um, and there are many, there are many such examples. Um, um, there are many such examples of where this is repeated. Um, I'm wondering if just off the top of your head, you can think of moments in Tanakh where Mama Harsinai is kind of as a trope repeated in a community. I'll throw out one. Sorry? Of course, right? So, so, say a bit more. Arvus in Deuteronomy, they're about to cross into the land. Right. So there's a repetition of revelation through Yehoshua, right? Absolutely. Um, that's very, very. That's an incredibly powerful moment, and all of the language repeats the language of Mount Marcina. Give me another example. Sorry? Beautiful. Say a bit more about that. This is very, very important also. Say a bit more. How is Eliyahu performing or reperforming the revelation at Sinai at, at Carmel? On top of the mountain, he's like reenacting the covenant between like the spiritual leader and the people. It's about revelation, calling down fire. It's miraculous. God acts, right? Across nature. Right? And, and it works, right? And also there's the danger of the idolatrous, you know, prophets who are consumed, right? And there's by fire, and there's lots of muscle. Another example I already threw out at you. Sorry? So the is so explicit. The Khanya stands on a wooden platform, right? Migdal eight. 
right? That's right, Ezra, sorry. Ezra, in, in, in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, Ezra stands on a wooden platform and re-delivers the law, this time as a, as a scroll. Another one, I'll mention one more. There are more than this. Another one is, 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 um, is at the very end of Malachi Bet, right? When Sefer Torah Masaki, in the context, Right, in the context of recovering what was lost and healing and improving on um, the temple, a, a, the, what, what Chazal says, sacred Zarim is recovered. Right, and then there's all this, you know, and Yoshiaki, there's all this horrible worry about what's going to happen now. Right, because of all the implications for the Tokaka, the rebuke in, in, in Zarim. And again, it's, it's not that it's the same as Sinai. It's not the same as Sinai. But it's a repetition that is a standing, this is a Judith Blackstone's title, standing again at Sinai, right? Which is, of course, what she's playing with. And there's a way in which, again and again, what we do is retell Mama Harsinai, and we know that this is commemorated or articulated in, um, a, 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 around um, the Chag of, um, the Chag of Shavuot, um, which is significant. Can I tell you to pass this back to the people that just came in? Thank you. Okay. All right, so Philo doesn't rewrite Sefer Dvarim, um, and he doesn't kind of falsely attribute what he's doing as a kind of new Bible in the way that uh, there's a book like Jubilee that does this, and other texts from the Second Temple period do. But I still remain, in some sense, that Philo is trying to practice a kind of seconding of Sinai. Um, and for Philo, the Mishnah Torah, right, of course I'm using a playful phrase here for two reasons, right? Rambam's Mishnah Torah is a retelling of Torah, but where does Mishnah Torah come from? What's the Mishnah Torah? Devarim, right? So in a way, Philo himself, the translation of the Hebrew to the Greek is itself a kind of repetition, a Mishnah Torah. Um, and more than an ordinary translation, the Greek for Philo, as we're going to see, is equivalent to the Hebrew. Josephus doesn't say it. The letter of Arisius does not say it. Chazal do not say it. Although you can lay from it, I'm sorry? The Immortal says it, doesn't But not as radical as Philo's account. The fact that you can lay from it, or you can lay from it in Aramaic, suggests that it can be understood to be inspired. Um, and the, the question is, I actually, I, I'll, I'll remain agnostic on this point. When you read this account now, I mean, we can talk about whether or not you think, some people do. There are two scholars I know who think that Kazal actually have read Philo's version and embrace some of that version. I, it doesn't, we, we have to understand of the differences of the story. In some sense, it's not about translation, this is about the narrative. But while it's a new text, the Greek scriptures or the Septuagint for Philo will have the authority of the Hebrew, number one. Number two will be identical with Torah Moshe represents revelation at Mama Harsina and is understood again miraculously, impossibly to be mosaic. Okay. There should be some skeptical voices or skeptical eyebrows that are worried about what I just told you. Um, what is Philo's philosophical justification for this remarkable claim? It's a claim that distinguishes it from the main account in Aristius. So let's take a look at it, and I've got this right, right in front of you. This is um, your handout. Number one, the translators of the Septuagint worked in conditions that reproduce the primordial conditions of the created world. And I already started to talk to you about this yesterday. 
They reproduce conditions, waters above, waters below, which we'll talk about in a minute. Complete silence. Not from you, from them. So they can think. Oh my, I, I love questions. Okay. The translators, too, were therefore able to do what motion did, to produce in human language a perfect copy of the law of nature itself, the law prescribed by the Creator, which, by the way, in the Greek world, is impossible. You cannot have a perfect copy of the law of nature, because the law of nature is unwritten. So Philo is both changing Greek narrative and also inserting Jewish narrative into Greek account of law. So this is what I mean by symbiosis. He's playing on both sides, right? Dancing at two weddings, whatever you want to call it. Um, three, that the translators, is what I mean by they, um, the, the priests, the rabbis, the elders, the different stories that identify the group differently, scholars, right? They were possessed by an external divine spirit that produced utterances through them, and they were both akin to hierophants, right, it's, it priests, as well as scriptural prophets. Hierophants are just high priests. So they're priests on the one hand, they're Kohanim, who know, and they're also into scriptural prophets, including Moshe. What do I mean by scriptural prophets? Um, prophets that, like Zechariah, read the past and interpret it and apply it to the present. And they're, they're also, the scriptural prophets are the prophets themselves that are authoritative. Uh, four, the Greek translation is not a mere imitation. He uses the word adelphos, which is the Greek for sister. He calls them sister, a text to the Hebrew. Both the Hebrew and Greek versions are paradoxically perfect images of the law of nature and share the same present. Uh, the, the same parent. Um, what's the parent? God. God? Um, some account of what's unutterable. He doesn't say this, right? But he does understand God through Moshe to have delivered the law. And the promulgation of the law of Moses in Greek, this is number five, is an important way on the step towards the eventual universalization of this law as a copy of the law of nature. Now, Part of what I want to say here, I want to emphasize that I'm not saying that the universalization, that, well, let's go back for a moment, um, that what Midrash Tanchuma is worried about is not a real worry. Right? We lost a lot in the universalization of the law. And we lost big wars and small wars over it. And in some sense, um, the, the war is still in, in deep ways lost, especially in the context of a Protestantization of American religion and the way in which we, even as a people, will ask, well, is it really in the text or is it in the midrash? I always consider that a huge loss when my children come back home from school, even as very little children, and they would say, well, you know, the teacher said that, you know, this is the text, but it's just a midrash. Mm -hmm. You know, all hell would break loose in my home, and I would say, that's the context. We don't know about texts without midrash. And it's not out of throat cut, but it's actually about the way in which our texts Develop. And that's exactly, by the way, those of you that know um, James Kugel's work, that's what he means by the Bible as it was. He means that the Bible in formation with interpretation and context, not just historical context, but interpretive context and practice and ritual. We don't read. We never read outside of that context. And that's what Pshat is for Rashi, and that's why Pshat can be in Drush. Bit of a sidebar, but I always like including that. Okay, um, because it's actually really relevant to translation, right? Because translation is also interpretation. We're trying to figure out when I use the word chokhmah, as my friend said yesterday, what are all the different valences of chokhmah? 
Right? Which which word are you going to choose in Greek? Which word are you going to choose in English? Right? We're choosing and then we're setting up a, a narrative moving forward. Okay. So let's talk about the conditions for the perfect translation. Um, I love this point. Um, um, I'm about to publish a, re a related piece um, um, on, on this very on this very point, and, and it's amazing to me that no one ever saw what, how brilliant Philo was in reading the sacred Breshit um, and applying it. Okay, text two. The island of Pharos lies in front of Alexandria. He, he's describing where they translated. And this is what I mean. You know, um, how many of you read some of Emerson a little bit? So I mean, he talks about creating conditions for perfection in, in, in America, right? And, um, and it's in that context I'm thinking about Philo, I'm using Emerson's language here to kind of talk about the perfect conditions for translation. What are the conditions, ideal conditions, to create a perfect translation? So um, he, he describes it. The island of Pharaoh lies in front of Alexandria, the neck of which runs out like a sort of tongue towards the city being surrounded with water of no great depth, but chiefly with shoals of shallow water, so that the great noise and roaring from the beating of the waves is kept at a considerable distance and shall mitigate it. They judge this place to be the most suitable of all the spots in the neighborhood for them to enjoy quiet um, and tranquility so that they might associate with the laws alone in their minds. Um, in, um, it's to talk about um, you know, a law alone, right, and eventually Moses and these other meditative figures of whom he speaks become the law alone, or soul alone, or mind alone. This is an important phrase for him. To, to, to be with the law alone in their minds. And there they remain, having taken the sacred scriptures, they lifted them up in their hands to heaven, entreating of God they might not fail in their object. By the way, this is exactly what the people do when they hear the law in the Hemet chapter 8. Right? Right? Like they, 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 they bring up their hands in prayer and also in fear. Right? This is an, a gesture of submission to God in prayer. Um, so prayer is also part of the translation process. And if the prayer is efficacious, they will succeed. Um, entreating God that they might not fail in their object. And he ascended to their prayers that the greater part or indeed the universal race of mankind might be benefited by using these philosophical and entirely beautiful commandments for the correction of their lives. Therefore, being settled in a secret place, and nothing even being present with them except the elements of nature, earth, water, and air, and the heaven, concerning the creation of which they were going in the first place to explain the sacred account, for the account of the creation of the world is the beginning of the law. They, like men inspired, prophesied, not one saying one thing at another, but every one of them employed the self-same noun verse, as if some unseen prompter had suggested all of their language to them. Okay, so, um, well, the perfect conditions in which the Septuagint was produced have both a negative and a positive aspect. Negatively, the translators are removed from the distractions and the corruptions of the city. By the way, this is why Philo says that the law has to be given in the desert on an essay called On the Decalogue, because you have to remove yourself. You know, what he meant to say to Paro, says Philo, is that they have to remove themselves from the corruptions of the city so that the, their, their soul can be cleansed from the corruption. So they have to remove themselves and go into the desert. Um, in this respect, they resemble not only, I want to say, the Israel, but also this group, this group of people 
um, who will move themselves, and they almost sound like people describe in Sefer Hasidim. They will move themselves in prayer and study in order to be one with God. Um, and, and they sing like angels, and their song is like that of Moshe and Miriam in a little essay called On the Contemplative Life. Um, okay, so I think I put some of these texts. Yeah, I did put some of these texts on there with you. This is text three. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm just going to, I want to show you kind of the ways in which in text three, this is text page two on your handout, text three, text four, and text five, all of them, all of them give an account. Text three is the passage I just referred to on the Decalogue. Well, this is why they have to go out of the desert. Text four and five is the way in which this community people called the therapeutai, which really means priests or healers. So the same, the same um, root that we use therapy. Therapeuo means to heal or to do a kind of priestly ritual. And he refers to these people as um, gone kind of at a remove in order, and you can see a text five, let's look at that little line. So much for the therapeutai taking to their hearts contemplation of nature. They have lived in the soul alone, citizens of heaven and the world. Um, I, do, I do actually want to tell you that Philo tried to do this for a while. When I say this, I don't know how many of you live in the city. I can imagine a lot of you live in the city. But he couldn't handle it. He had to go back to Alexandria. He like, couldn't constitutionally, now he had family obligations to be sure. He might have even had a school where many of these books are produced. But you know, he, he tried to, to do the kind of monastic thing, but it didn't quite work out for him. Um, which is funny. Um, um, or not funny. I mean, it's serious because he's also a citizen of heaven. That is, he needs to make a difference in his world, which is why he was involved, of course, in the embassy of Gaius. Um, anyway, um, let's talk about positively. So negatively, they clear everything away. What are the positive accounts of what translation might mean in the context of surviving, of preserving, and of um, transmitting the text of Torah to a Jewish community living in Alexandria. And now, he's talking about it as though, Philo talks about it as though it's for everyone in Alexandria. You know, going back to the point we made yesterday, you know, making it available to everyone. What we know from our Greek sources is that the Greeks didn't know much about Jews. There's an occasional moment where they seem to refer to weird rituals or practices or Shabbat as something strange or dietary or blah. But they don't really know much about Jews, and nor are they particularly attentive. For Philo, it seems that the real argument here is about creating a vibrant context for Jews to continue to be Jews and to have access to the text. They may have even read the Torah in Greek at Shabbat. There is one passage from the text called the Hypothetica, which is preserved by a later church father, where Philo describes what Shabbat morning is like. And they read the Torah and then they interpret with a priest or an elder until the middle of the afternoon. Um, presumably they had to have Kiddush, but he doesn't actually talk about that. Um, um, but but um, it is it's significant that his Hebrew is so weak and we think that they actually read in Greek. I'm oh, sorry, you had a question. Going back. Um, I'm curious about how, and I guess what would be going on, how it Yes. So really the 
Um, I, I guess I, I want to ask what would Philo say about your view? And I think the passages, so I, I can, what's your name? Rishi. So there are two ways to understand, you know, what, what, uh, the way Philo might respond. On the one hand, he might say, I would never underline Torah Moshe, the Hebrew text. Um, but it's a copy of, of what, what this lady said earlier, of kind of divine writs, divine word, and divine imagination, the creation of the world, um, as the law of Moses. Um, um, on the other hand, he says repeatedly that the law of Moses is equal to the law of nature, um, which pushes it farther. You cannot systematize Philo's thinking. I mean, this is, that you have different views here. And let, let me just make explicit what you're, you're bringing out a very important difference. Are we going to say that by the both of these views, by the way, you can get, you know, in Chazal as well. You know, are you going to say that there's an ideal kind of law, a perfect law, an idea of a law, right, metaphysically, and that, you know, this is a copy of it, an expression of it, it is that a lesser form, that's part of what that's saying. Or would you say that somehow, miraculously, paradoxically, we can have a copy of the law of Moses, which, if you study it correctly, meditate on it, you can actually learn the law of nature. Um, now, there are figures that he will say have this gift, and we're going to talk about them a little bit tomorrow. There are exemplary figures like Abraham and Moshe before the law that are able to know and intuit the law on their own. That is, they're able to be at one with the law of nature before the law is given. Is that because you know they have a different kind of spirit or a different kind of soul that somehow offers them um, that kind of perfection? Um, I, I want to come back to it because I'm actually going to talk more about Rishi's question, but it's something that I want us to keep to keep very much in mind. Um, so, um, here, let me just give you this handout. So, as I started to say, the translators are alone except for the four elements, which is very important. Earth, if you go back to that text I just read with you, earth, water, air, and the heavenly element, fire. Now, in the next text in your handout, um, this text called De Apothecium Mundi, or On the Creation of the World, um, every, I'm reading from the text, every human being, as far as his mind is concerned, is akin to the divine word, or Dabar. I mean, what he means by logos is what we mean by Dabar, um, Dibor, um, and has come into being as a casting or fragment or effulgence of the blessed nature. But in the structure of his body, he's related to the entire cosmos. For it's a compound made for the same things, earth, water, air, and fire, each of the elements making the required contribution for the completion of an entirely sufficient material which the creator had to take in hand in order to fabricate this visible image. And what we're talking about here, of course, is the creation of humanity, right? Um, you know, and here in this passage you just read, God orders the heavens, um, the number four contains the basic you know, ratios of music and reveals the nature of the world. Four will be the first square, and indeed it's uniquely producible from the same factors by both addition and multiplication. All of this is very important to Philo because of Pythagoreanism. In addition, most importantly, four is a principle for, to quote again, the entire heaven and cosmos, out of which the universe was constructed, flowed forth from a source, and from the four in the realm of numbers. So while the human being is made in Salam Elohim, in image of God, insofar as it's intimately related to God's Dibur, it also bears a special relationship to the cosmos. When human beings die, they will dissolve into their basic components, 
the soul plus the four elements. Um, and really, um, and this actually comes up in text in text seven on your handout. Um, um, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read it again. But I mean, I'm not going to read it in detail. But I, what I, the, the point I want to get at here, and you're welcome to take a look at text seven, is um, the proximity to the elements, like like the creation of humanity. The translators on the island of Pharos were as close to the original human being as possible while they're still alive. These are the four elements that comprise the body of the cosmos, just as they comprise what went into the creation of the human. So the human being becomes a microcosm for the creation of the world, which is a macrocosm. The law of Moses becomes a microcosm for the entirety of the law of nature. Um, these translators, these Kohanim, these Chachamim, these Zikanim, again, different ways of characterizing them, are in conditions that reproduce the primordial conditions of the created world and are optimally positioned to grasp the law of nature itself. That is, to get it right. So another way of answering Rishi's question is to say that there's a kind of law of nature that these people, because they become at one with, um, with revelation or with inspiration, are able to perfectly create again now in a sister translation. And remember again what's at stake. We want to be able to read and pray and interpret a holy text. So what's at stake with saying that you can learn from a Greek text, as the rabbis will say later, or that this is an inspired text, is can it be understood to be a continued connection with Jerusalem, a continued connection with the Beit HaMikdash and with Moshe? That's what he's trying to affect here. So to talk about second things planet, we're not talking here about whether or not Philo succeeded or failed. Right? What we're trying to understand is what is the context for Hellenism and Judaism? What are the rabbis pushing back on and what are they embracing? What are they worried about and what are they integrating? Yes? So the uh, Jews and the Greeks did not believe that um, aside from Judaism, all of animal creation was somehow part of God? You know. They do or do not? Um, that's my question. Of course they do. But, 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 but this isn't part about, you're asking if the creation of the law of nature? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I, I thought a lot about his account of, on the creation of the world where he kind of goes through all of the parts. Um, I, I think he would say absolutely it's part of the whole. And the Jews also, I mean, Jewish, ancient Jewish tradition also considered to be part of the whole. If you're asking is there a different nature between humanity and the text I mentioned yesterday from Genesis 9 from, from, the, from the Noah story about um, killing and murder, and how that's kibitzelam elohim time because in the image of God, you know, God created them. I think that there is really very early on a difference between understanding human blood and humanity and animals, which has a lot to do with why animals can be used as sacrifice. And that's really a very it's an excellent question, but it would take us not only to Noah but also to Sefer Vayikra, which is a like, for example, paradigm. But it's a really good question, um, and I think my my short answer. Is um, it's all part of this, it's all part of a larger thing, but I would want to hold the place for the distinctiveness of human creation, but not in any way to degrade or undermine the world, all of the different parts which are considered holy 
and part of the whole of what we mean by not separate sheep. And the representation of animals, even in a text like um, like Ezekiel 1, which we talked about yesterday, you know, not separate sheep, the, the place of animals, not only not only in sacrifice, but also in form and representation is also going to be extremely important um, in, in the Beit HaMikdash. So I'll stop there. Yes? Really, 
not a son of a prophet. Like, Allah also plays with it. They're, they're pushing away because what they become are vessels. And these Kohani, they're not Nabi'in, they're not called Nabi'in, but they certainly have inspired status. They receive divine inspiration in the context of the translation. And this is, again, a very strong argument. We can take it as apologetics, right? We can take it as a kind of, um, of, of a deep belief that Philo had in the sustaining of Jewish tradition, even in diaspora. Remember, this is not a period of exile. There's a functional second temple, but there are many stand-alone or independent communities in Rome. We know a little bit about Alexandria. We know a lot about, and also outside of Jerusalem. There's at least one, some people think many more communities, that identify with this, the scrolls that were found among the 11 caves of the Dead Sea, calling themselves a yachad, criticizing the temple, um, but also continuing to function in conversation with Jerusalem and also, of course, with Torah Moshe. Okay, let's take a look at text number 8. This is, I'm sorry, the, the title for the text is just on the bottom of page 2. We're jumping to the top of page 3. Here writes Philo. This is um, um, again. This is continuing the way in which Philo of Alexandria describes the translation. Does everyone have one? Everyone have yes? Okay. Sitting here in seclusion with none present, save the elements of nature, earth, water, air, heaven, and the genesis of which was to be the first theme of their sacred revelation. I.e., what is he talking about? Genesis chapter one. He's talking about Rashid. Like this is what they're doing. The law, before the laws begin with the story of the world's creation, they became, as it were, possessed, and under inspiration wrote, not each several scribes something different, but the same word for word as though dictated by this invisible prompter. And here, here in passage 37 in Life of Moses 2, um, we see this account of inspiration. Um, so too, when Moshe explains um, explains what happened to Bil'am, right, when he gets Matobu o Alecha Yahakov, again, in text 9, he's suddenly possessed, understanding nothing, and the words are put into his mouth. So this is the way he describes prophetic possession, or the, ex as Weber, Max Weber talks about, it, the ecstatic, the ecstatic experience of prophecy. Um, now, Philo draws on the language, of course, of the Greek mysteries, which I mentioned yesterday, I'm going to mention again today, and, and also on the Platonic account of poetic, prophetic inspiration. I'm not going to read um, that passage, but I just, those of you that are interested in some pretext, it's not pretext, but kind of text before Philo that he's drawing upon, is a little passage I included from Plato. Um, and part of what I want to say about, you know, about um, this account um, from um, from Plato's The Phaedrus, you know, unlike the case of Bil'am, you know, not to mention, as Plato does, the, the priestesses of Delphi and Dodona, the elders involved in producing the Septuagint, they dedicated their lives to practicing and studying the Law of Moses. So this is not going to be the case for Philo of Delphi and Dodona or of Bil'am. It's exclusively or exceptionally these people that are able to repeat under perfect conditions the achievements of Moses himself. And this is a great passage to re reply to two comments that were made earlier today um, on text 12 on your handout. Philo writes, Happy are those who imprint or strive to imprint the image of Moshe in their souls, for it were best that the mind should carry the form of virtue and perfection, but if you can't, that is, if you can't be, if you can't be like Moshe, 
Just try to be like Moshe. Imitate Moshe. Watch Moshe. Do what Moshe does. Uh, absolutely, that's exactly where I was going to go. So Zusha, you know, so you know what you do is you be the best, and it, it sounds so trite and ridiculous, and it sounds like the army commercial. But you know, you be the best that you can be. But but what you do is you do it with an eye towards your exemplars. And I'm going to return to this point tomorrow because what does it mean to be an ideal Moshe in the first century of the common era in Philo's hands? You know, you have to be perfect at harmony and perfect at mathematics. That's the sign of insight, you know. Um, so there's a certain cultural context when we talk about someone who's a gaon today, someone who's great. We might talk about the work they've done in physics, or you know, you'll find all over our high schools here. You know, they'll talk about you know he's brilliant at the bar and he did calculus at seven and a half. Because you know we have our own culture for talking about genius and files. Also, there's a contextual context for talking about what made Moshe extraordinary. Um, okay. Sorry, question? No? Okay. Um, for Moshe exemplified in his life the ultimate perfection of the human who was created after Salam Elohim, which is to say, through Dibur Hashem, through the Word, capable of grasping the creative and legislative powers of Hashem. Creative, I mean bara. Legislative, I mean Torah. That's exactly what Philo was thinking about, both the creation of the world and then the creation of the text, which is a perfect expression in this world of the creation of the world. Right? So you've got the law of nature, which is the framework, it's the archetype, it's the paradigm, and then you have the law of Moses, which is a perfect example and expression of the creation of the world. Um, those of you that were here yesterday will hear these deep connections between Job 38, right? The way in which I talked about Chokhmah and creation, I want you to hear that also today. The language of creation, the language of Chokhmah, the idea that primordial wisdom um, that is before the creation of the world um, goes hand in hand with the creation of, um, of humanity and also with repetition or poetry, by which I mean Mishkan, Beit HaMikdash. Um, okay. um, let's talk a little bit about the notion of um, the notion of uh, sisters, um, what siblings? I mean, it's not it's not particularly gendered here. Um, okay. Um, let's take a look at text thirteen. Um, for if the Chaldeans were to learn the Greek language, and if the Greeks were to learn Chaldean, if each were to meet those with scriptures in both languages, they would admire and revere them both as sisters, rather one is the same. Um, considering these translators, though, they were not mere interpreters, but they were high priests and prophets, to whom it had been granted in their honest and guileless minds to go along with the most pure spirit of Moshe. What's really interesting here is that there's no creativity on the part of these people because it's already always determined. What's created then, according to Philo, is a second Torah Moshe. It's what I call Mishnah Torah. It's second chronologically but equal in status. He knows very well that what he means to be talking about is sacred learning as a repetition of the law. He is um, bold, we could call him chuspedic, we can call him delusional, or we can call him inspired. He talks about himself not as a prophet, but as a kind
kind of second Moses, in the way that Rambam, as many people have pointed out, understood himself to be repeating the work of Moshe through the Mishneh Torah. Um, the Greek is not the child of the Hebrew, but its sister, and they both share the same parent. Let's think a little bit about my fourth point, copy of the law of nature. This parent, of course, is none other than God, or the law of nature that is embodied in the cosmos, by which I mean the cosmos, I mean the creation of the world from Philo. As Philo says elsewhere in On the Life of Moses, the prophetic lawgiver chose to begin the law with an account of creation because, quote, um, he considered that to begin his writings with the foundation of a man-made city, um, here we have, I think you have this on your hand, hold on. Yeah, sorry, it's the top of page four on your handout. Um, he considered that to begin his writings with the foundation of a man-made city was below the dignity of the lost. Um, and surveying the greatness and beauty, you know, he's thinking about Plato's laws. The question that's raised is why don't you start with Akhodesh HaZalachan? Why don't you start with calendar as Kazakh? Right? Right? As opposed to, and quoted by Rashi, right? You know, why don't you start with calendar that's the first mitzvah starts in Shemot? What do you do with the first part? So Pilate was asking, as I suggested yesterday, the same question. Why do we start with Matzah Reishi? And he answers, um, surveying the greatness and beauty of the whole code with the accurate discernment of his mind's eye and thinking it too good and godlike to be confined within any earthly walls. He inserted the story of the genesis of the great city, holding that the laws were the most faithful copy of the world polity. Now, I've already talked about this briefly in my introduction today. From the viewpoint of Greek philosophy, we cannot have an unwritten law of nature and also have a written copy of it. It's impossible to have a perfect copy. Yet Philo maintains that in the law of Moses, the law of nature has a perfect written copy. And by the way, you know, the language of law of nature does come up later in Rambam in medieval Jewish texts. We don't have this earlier. Did they read Philo? Certainly not. We have no evidence that they had access, although they're shared midrashim. There's no transmission in Jewish community of Philo, which goes back, is that that? Oh, Dan, 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 yes. Dan's question, thank you. Dan's question yesterday about how long did the Greek community continue. We don't have evidence for dissemination of Philo's writings um, amongst Jewish communities, but we have some shared materials. Um, um, only, only in the Renaissance is Philo rediscovered by Jews. And you know that we're in the midst now, about halfway through, of a modern Hebrew translation of Philo, which is really, really exciting. You know, also, you know, people are integrating the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is exciting, just take a three different moment. But I'll say this is exciting because these texts have not really been taught to our children. And they're part there's much a part of Jewish history as is Josephus, which is more normative. Um, and I think it complicates and opens up um, and opens up different ways of thinking about authority and community in Jewish antiquity as well as the creative, imaginative way in which um, Second Temple Jews are already thinking about creation, not because they're normative or they were transmitted. Right? You're, you're my, my difference here. Anyway, I'm both go back to this another time. But um, Philo maintains that in the Law of Moses, this Law of Nature has a perfect written copy, as expressed by Torah Moshe. And I want to add something that I said before. It's a little bit, a little something to what I said before. 
The law of nature has two perfect written copies now in Philo's hands. There's Torah Moshe in Hebrew, and now Torah Moshe in Greek. It may help to think anachronistically, I think, in terms of digital rather than analog reproduction. An analog copy also involves further losses. However, the proliferation of digital copies, such as the copying of word processor documents, involves no loss of information since each involves the same information as any other. You know, indeed, the distinction between original and copy has no real application here, and goes back to Rishi's question, except in a chronological sense. One could say that all of the copies are sisters. Similarly, and this also was already signaling something I want to say about Freda's question with respect to canopy and other languages. We're going to return to that in a few minutes. Both the Hebrew and the Greek are digital copies expressing exactly the same information, namely the law of nature translated into a law fit for the human city, the polis. Um, now, <laughs> you might also say, there's a little more to say about this, because this is a very particular story. This is not a secular law. We're not talking about a secular state. We're talking about the law of Moses. You know, the law of the king is particularly monotheistic. There's a particular set of rituals, and there's a particular notion of covenant, right? Of breed, um, which is breed avot and also the breed of Malachar Sinai. So I'll stop there for a minute and let's move on to point five. Universalization. A law, right, just, just to remind you what, where, where I am, there's a point five, the promulgation of the law from text one on your handout, yeah? So we're just going to do text point five now, okay? Here is where I begin um, um, this point about universalization. A law expressing a law of nature itself is not fit for only one human city. It's fit for all. And here, and I talked about this a little bit yesterday because it was a Sarajatebe, the Greek translation becomes an important step towards the, what he calls the eventual universalization of the law. Um, Philo, and here, here um, we can actually take a look at this. Before, before I do this, I mentioned it yesterday, that he talks about the celebration of Septuagint Day. You know, you know, like when I was living in Canada when they created Family Day, all of a sudden it was a new day um, on the calendar. He talks about Septuagint Day, and it's important here that as far as we know, this was never celebrated. But he's talking about, again, is he protesting too much about universalization and how relevant it would be for the Greek community? And again, I, I raise it as a question, but nevertheless, I want to hear carefully and deeply what he's speaking to. Let's take a look, if you don't mind, at... Um, text, yeah, text 15 on your handout. Even to this very day, writes Philo, there is every year a solemn assembly held and a festival celebrated on the island of Eros, which is not only the Jews, but a great number of persons of other nations. They sail across, referencing the place in which the first light of interpretation shone forth, thanking God for that ancient piece of beneficence which was always young and fresh. You know, in a way, when I taught this before, I thought about something like, by analogy, Rosh Hashanah. Like, this is Hayom Hara Olam, right? I mean, he's talking about a new creation that has happened through translation. How dramatic and powerful this account of creation is for him. This creation. Yes. Um, no, I mean, I, I mentioned Rosh Hashanah, because, but, you know, Simchat Torah is, of course, very relevant, also a much later rabbinic development, because it begins and opens the Torah, and because it is inextricably linked 
Rosh Hashanah with, uh, with, the, with the text itself, that it's the creation of the world and the creation of text. Actually, I think it's a great point that if we're trying to get at it conceptually, Rosh Hashanah has come out inadequate, and that we have to, if, um, we have to, that's a very good point. It's an excellent, it's an excellent, it's an excellent point because it's so textual, but it's also about origins, right? A point of origination with respect to textuality. Excellent, thank you. Okay, let's go back. So, um, uh, line 42. And after the prayers and the giving of thanks, some of them pitched their tents on the shore, and some of them lay down without any tents in the open air on the sand of the shore, and feasted with their, now we're in July 4th, right? Um, <laughs> Atlantic Beach, right? And feasted with their relations and friends, thinking that the shore at that time a more beautiful abode than the furniture of the king's palace. This is such an important line, folks, because there's a lot of attention to the furniture of the Mishkan or of the Beit HaMikdash and the furniture of the palace in the, the letter of Arithmius, one of the earliest accounts we have of Philo. Philo knows this narrative and he's changing it. He knows the earlier version of the story of the translation and he's changing it. And there are many moments where you can see the connection. Um, in this way, 43, those admirable and incomparable and most desirable laws were made known to all people, whether private individuals or kings, and this too at a period when the nation had not been prosperous for a long time. And it's generally the case that a cloud is thrown over the affairs of those who are not flourishing, so that but little is known of them. And then if they make any fresh start and begin to improve, how great is the increase of their renown and glory? I think that in the case of every nation, abandoning all of their own individual customs and utterly disregarding their national laws, would change and come over to the honor of such people only for their laws, shining in connection with and simultaneous with the prosperity of the nations, which will obscure all others, just as the rising sun obscures the stars. Wow, right? Um, there is a text in Tanakh, which I, I like to teach with this text. It's um, Zechariah 14. It's when all of the nations come together and recognize God. Right? There's, there's a sense of a coming together, a kind of kibbutz galiot, if you will, from all over the place, but it becomes a universal day where God is recognized. Um, this language of, of recognition. Here, Philo certainly has a pretty dramatic account right, of, um, of, of the power of not just the translation, well, like, well the power of the translation, let me, let me say that, the power of what the translation achieved. Um, and also, this compelling account. You know, there are people, I do have colleagues who talk about this written for non-Jews. We just don't, I'm not compelled by this. And I've worked closely with people who work in the ancient Greek world. I think what he's doing is really, first of all, he's, it's very determined, I want to say, by other kinds of translation and refinement and editing that's going on in the ancient Greek world. And we know a lot about what's going on in Alexandria. The Homeric tradition is being interpreted, refined, um, expanded soon. Soon there'll be this debate about translation from Greek to Latin. Um, um, and there's interpretation is very much part of this preservation of an original Homer, right, or the text, how to bring it all out. And I think we have to, just like people have worked on Lashi with respect to Pshat, in the context of what's going on in Troyes and more generally in France, among his contemporaneous interpreters from Christianity, um, so too, um, we need to think about the context for the way in which Philo is describing interpretation. Um, uh, someone like someone just mentioned to me yesterday that, um, that Rabbi Hittery is talking about rhetoric in Bavli, 
his new book is on rhetoric and talking. And this picks up, of course, on the work not only of Shaul Lieberman, but also on the work of David Dowbeck. And that also was the kind of the, you know, understanding rhetoric in a larger cultural context. It doesn't make it less compelling, but it shows, as my argument tried to do yesterday, that we are very much part of the culture in which we live. And that is part, also, I wanted to extend this response to the Dalai Lama, that's also part of how we've survived, that we've absorbed and remained distinct nevertheless. And that's what Philo says when he said, was he Jewish or was he religious? He particularly argues against the extreme allegorizers. There are people, he says, in my own world, in my community, who take the allegorical interpretation or the higher meaning, understand, for example, the um, the Mishkan, um, he talks about the Mishkan with respect to Moshe, or the elements in the Beit HaMikdash as only being about the cosmos, because he interprets them as being, have correspondence in the heavens. But he says, no, they also have to have relevance and compelling nature on the ground. That is, the details of interpretation, the details of ritual and law on the ground must not be thrown away like a ladder, right? And you leave the ladder behind and you find your way in a heavenly temple or an idealized temple. So for Philo, the particular matters. So even though the law of Moshe has universal significance, it doesn't only have universal significance. And that's why Richie's question earlier, I want to say yes and yes. You know, you said, is it this view or is it that view, if I understood you correctly? And the answer is both, that it's both of universal significance and universally, so much so that all of the nations from all over the world will come to the Isle of Pharos and celebrate and camp out, you know, for the day, memorializing, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right, memorializing the translation of the Septuagint. But at the same time, there's a particular, he talks about circumcision, he talks about kashrut, he talks about, um, he has a long essay that you know, opens up each of the moments of the Decalogue and then four essays called the particularities, what we would call um, something like, as people have pointed out, Torah Shvap that is working out the details of the laws themselves. Okay. Um, uh, yes. Okay. I think everyone recognizes that. I don't think anyone, and this is, I don't know if you heard the question in the back of the two. Panina. No, I think, you know, Panina's saying, ah, it sounds a little apologetic in these. And I say, absolutely. Um, but I, I, so I don't think, I, I, I think what Philo is trying to do is to preserve community, his own community. And that's why he mourns the conversion or the apostasy of his nephew. Um, and what's at stake? You know, he worries about um, he he worries about pederasty. I mean, he worries about um, he worries about a lot of the things that were going on or are celebrated or permitted in the Greek world. He's constantly trying to push away, and yet he absorbs elements of mystery and mysticism that are very much part of the Greek the Greek world. And the ideals of the Greek world are still part of what he does and how he thinks about perfection. And I already started to talk about that yesterday with a text from Qumran um, for Q instruction, a Hebrew text about Greek, about, about wisdom that has Greek elements in it. So you're right, but I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater, ever. <laughs> Literally and metaphorically. Okay, so um, um, it's clear that Philo did not see the Greek translation as a threat to the survival of Judaism. He did not anticipate the possibility that the Greek text would play a role in Christian supersessionism. Does anyone know, later, if you don't know what I mean by supersessionism. 
So superspecialism is the argument, thank you, is the argument that Judaism is superseded or replaced um, by Christianity in a different ways in which. So, you know, our Mashiach is replaced by a more perfect Messiah, or our suffering becomes redundant through their suffering. And there's both in primordial, so there's a pre-redundancy and a post-redundancy. So that's kind of an extreme form that there's one covenant and ours is rendered redundant. There are other views in Christianity, like a two-covenant theory since Vatican II. There's been, and even more recently, there's been more radical move to try to accommodate um, the, the preservation and the sustenance of Judaism in a larger narrative in a post-Holocaust environment. But, um, so, let me go back. So, um, it's clear that Philo didn't see the Greek translation as a threat. He didn't anticipate the possibility that the Greek text at the same time would play a role, for example, in Paul of Tarsus's journey on the road to Damascus to render, um, to render our own tradition allegorized or the law redundant. Right? This is a very serious worry. The same tools of interpretation around universality of the same kind of move can be used to preserve the universal in particular or to render the particular redundant. So what Philo's worrying about is going on in his day, it's not yet called early Christianity. It's a Jewish sect. Um, in addition, um, he didn't know that within two centuries, um, he would be remembered, and I always tell this story with tremendous sadness in my heart. He would be remembered as Philo Christianus. Mm -hmm. um, people would, he would be remembered and used by early Christian interpreters in Alexandria, like Clement and Origen and others, and he would be referred to as Philo the Christian. It was surely the development of this unanticipated tendency that would lead back to what we spoke about earlier, the rabbinic commemoration of the Greek translation, not as an annual festival, but in Asarah Tebe, the fast of the 10th of Tebe, so that in Masachet Sofrim, the day of translation is said to have been, and I said this yesterday, as hard for Israel, as hard for B'nai Israel, as on the day when the Ego Hazachal, the golden calf, was made. Quote, for the Torah could not be translated in the way that it would have been required. And that's the phrase. That's not the only view, as we've talked about. You get a different view of Chazal. But this is very important because it couldn't be farther from Philo's account. It couldn't be farther, that it couldn't be translated. It was insufficient, that it failed. Failed, right, in its, in its project. Let me reflect a little bit. Um, hold on one second. I just don't have. My, my computer is also my clock. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, almost 3? Oh. 2.52. What's that? 2.52. 2.52, right. We're good. We're, uh, that's exactly where I wanted to be. Thank you. Um, um, Philo's celebration, we, we, I'm going to reflect a little bit on the text we looked at for about another 5 to 7 minutes. You can take a quick break, and then we're going to read some of these versions in more depth. And I've got a few questions for you to think about. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, Philo's celebration of the Greek rendition of Torah Moshe is certainly one of the most intense identifications of a Jewish thinker with the general culture. He anticipated, I want to say today, Hermann Kohn's insistence in 1915 in Germany, in 1915, on the kindred spirits, indeed the symbiosis of Germanness and Jewishness. You know, I could be quoting Rosenzweig or Buber, I quoted Hermann Kohn. Sadly, both Philo of Alexandria in the first century and Hermann Kohn in the 20th century 
stood unwittingly on the brink of destruction. You know, for Philo, it was the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, it was the it was the complete and utter destruction of the Alexandrian Jewish community in 117, and the destruction of Jewish building and community as we knew it after the Bar Kokhba revolt. And Herman Cohn, I, I don't need to describe what he stood on the brink of. Yes, it's important to note that Philo does not claim in his account of the Greek rendition that there's something about Greek thought or culture that created the potential affinity with Judaism. Um, although he does talk about the Greek rhetors and the forms of Greek that can approximate brilliantly and beautifully Hebrew idiom. Cohn, <coughs> um, on the other hand, claim, would claim that the perfection of the German rendition was possible because German culture had already been shaped by Judaism. Again, is this true? Is it tragic? Is it ironic? That was the claim that was made about Greekness by later church fathers like Eusebius. And Herman Cohn argued about his own translation and his own work of integrating Judaism and German culture, that German culture had been shaped by Jewish messianism. Um, you know, it's, it's not funny, actually. It's completely... Yeah, no, but it's actually serious. It's, it's, it's not just tragic. And it's also true. That is what we know now, and there's recent work that's been done um, by recent, recent um, philosophers who work in the German tradition, the German secular tradition, that there was a lot that was absorbed by the Christian Kabbalists, who, of course, absorbed Kabbalah from Jewish Kabbalists. And the terms like Simpson, for example, became very central to figures like Schelling and Hegel. Again, that's a sidebar for another talk, not by me. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's very compelling work, and it's exciting work, not because Herman Cohn was right, but because there's something very deep about the way German philosophical tradition was impacted by the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition and, of course, the Jewish scriptural tradition. Philo's claim is that the act whereby Moshe produced the law of Moses because of its special relationship to the law of nature is inherently repeatable, right? We can do Mishneh Torah again and again. In principle then, and this comes to Freda's point, although Philo doesn't say it, I think there's reason why the conditions for the production of the Septuagint could not be recreated so as to give an equal authority to the rendition of law in any other language, Arabic, German, or English. Now, and this is back to Freda's point, I mean, we can think about this some more. Um, I think Philo's position has deep affinities, not with Herman Cohn, but with another Jew who suffered tragically during the Shoah, Walter Benjamin, who was very close with Gershom Shoah. They were really best friends and correspondent, and he was on his way to Israel when he died tragically in the Pyrenees. Benjamin also thought that certain works, and this actually couldn't be closer to Rishi's question about a half hour ago, Benjamin also thought that certain works are inherently translatable, um, and not because of the possibility of copying, but because they exhibit a kind of vitality that intends beyond language. Um, I think Philo thinks that about Hebrew scripture, that it's inherently translatable not because of faithfully copying Greek and the Hebrew form of words, but because Hebrew scripture was grounded in the law of nature and ultimately in divine deep word, utterance, and because it points beyond any one language towards the universal acceptance of the law of Moshe. That's a big project. 
right? To talk about the universality and the relevance of Torah Moshe. But each of these views must be understood in its own specific context. And here I'm not going to, um, I think I'm not going to read um, this passage from Benjamin um, uh, now just because of the, the time. You can, you, know, you can certainly read it, you can certainly read it on, on your own. Um, here what he's doing, he's grounding um, a certain conception of life transferred from nature to history. And I'm, I'm going to skip this part of my presentation. But in Philo's view, which I want to talk about and which I sketched out here, it's really based on his understanding of the role of the Dibur in Ma'asai Bereshit, the role of, of God speaking in Ma'asai Bereshit, and his conception of the special character of human beings, going back to your question earlier about does this render animals lesser beings. So I'm not implicating any other part of the creation of the world, but I do want to say that central to Philo's account, which you did pick up on, I think, quite quite beautifully, is there's a, there's, um, that human beings are the image of divine divorce as a kind of microcosm of the world. And his vision of the possibility of individual humans, such as Moshe and Abraham, as we'll see tomorrow, grasping the law of the divine polis, the cosmos, Eden, the heavens, and articulating it now as a law for the earthly polis, not just Yerushalayim, but wherever we live, like this is why Philo's important in this context. It can happen in Alexandria, in Rome, in Jerusalem, in Cyprus, in Caesarea, in Cyprus. Um, and here, last but not least, we see Philo's commitment to the ancient Jewish idea of Moshe's accomplishment as, on the one hand, unique, but at the same time, repeatable. Right, so it's unique that it's, it's this extraordinary moment, almost out of time, because it's impossible to achieve, and yet it's repeatable. Um, and in that context, um, I want us to think about this confrontation or this tension between Hellenism and Judaism. It's a tragic loss on the one hand, and it's celebrated as a perfect translation on the other. Perfect enough, at any rate, to be able to learn from. Jewish communities have read from Greek Torah, right? So this is really important, um, and this isn't, um, and, and it's perfection. The perfection of the Greek Bible has been celebrated as such. Um, so um, the tensions and the difficulties of the reception of the Greek translation as tragedy or as um, the source of celebration is exactly where I want to leave you um, now. Um, um, I'm not actually leaving, but going to kind of end the formal part of the presentation. What I prepared for you, let me say a little bit about what I prepared for you, um, and what I'd like you to do with it. It's going to be a little fun. Um, I'd like you to compare Josephus's narrative and Philo's narrative, and I've asked um, them to also print out of the letter of Aristius, which is a long text, and I printed excerpt from it. But um, that's kind of our earliest complete version of the story. Um, you're welcome also to bring to bear other versions you know, especially from Chazal. I figured those were far more familiar to this group. And what I want, I've already alluded to many of them. And they're not as long or as labored as what, I, what I'm offering. And I'd like us just to reflect a little bit on how it's characterized. How does it compare? How does Philo compare to Josephus? And I'm going to go see if they were able to run up the Aristius section. How does the Aristius section 
um, compare to file with Josephus. But even if they weren't able, they weren't sure they were able to run the whole thing off. Just start now reading through Josephus, reading through Philo, with the Hebrews, and taking some notes. And I'm going to come to, like, with questions to you about its profession, about the impossibility, about the benefit, about talking about Torah Moshe as ideal. Okay? Torah Moshe 
as an important piece of literature and work or even an ideal exemplar of a law, like Plato's law. Right? So this is part of what I wanted you to see. But Shana's question is, what, what do we actually see? And I wanted to say something about recent and very exciting work that we see in the Septuagint. Um, so I'm going to mention three things briefly. So this is kind of the so, the so what question. What about that Septuagint? So number one, a lot of people are working now. I can name lots of scholars if you want. Jim Aiken, Jan Houston, Michael Siegel at Hebrew University. Jan Houston is with me in Oxford. Jim Aiken is at Cambridge University. Um, they're thinking about the Septuagint as Prussian New Tapaduma, as early biblical interpretation. And they're reading, and I've said this many times today, that it's inspired interpretation. But my little introduction was really about interpretation even more than it was about translation. And, there, and that was really under, underneath all of this are actual examples. There are, two there are two dissertations that are currently being written in Oxford on this very topic, showing one is on Yahoo and one is on Shmok, and showing how the Septuagint is transforming, not, not, not talking about the letter of Mercedes, that kind of, <coughs> it's almost like you have to part the waters, move away from the stories that are told about, about, the, about the making of the Septuagint or the translation or the miraculous moment on the Isle of Barrows, right? But this is actually what we have in front of us. And what, you know, you know, it's similar, similarly when people talk about the Midoch and the hermeneutical rules that the rabbis discuss with respect to their own interpretation, that actually doesn't map on, as Yishai Rosenzi has shown, to actually what's going on in the text. There's an idealized form, and then there's the actual part, and you can map on some of it, but it doesn't map on and it doesn't exhaust what's going on in Jewish rabbinic interpretation. So too, the account of the Septuagint, I think, really has to be taken apart from the actual Greek Bible that we have. Um, and what we can do there, we understand that it was produced by Jews in the Second Temple period. We even have manuscripts, in fact, before the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is very important to say. Why does the Septuagint matter so much? Well, one of the reasons is because that was our earliest copy of Tanakh. We had an amulet with Birchat Kohen on it, right? You know, Yibarecha Hashem, Yishmarecha. We had an amulet. You know, we had um, a couple of inscriptions, but we didn't have Hebrew text. We had Greek text. With the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have almost every book, with the exception of the Gilad Esther, we have parts or all of all of our Kapdalat Tanakh, of our 24 books of Tanakh, in Hebrew and Aramaic a little bit. Um, so, um, the Septuagint is, so my first point is that the work that's being done is open to it being a little more wooden. Some of them are, the, 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 the flavor of it seems more kind of correspondences and wooden. There's a lot of interpretation, almost midrash, that's embedded in the Greek translations of the Hebrew. Um, we also see some versional differences, and that's why I mentioned the scrolls in response to Shana's really important question. We see that amongst the scrolls that are found, um, amongst in these 11 caves, they're not all scrolls caves, but many of them are, are scrolls caves. But sometimes we find Hebrew texts that correspond. So let me back up for a second. There are differences in the Septuagint, as you mentioned earlier. What was your first name? Avi. Right. So Avi, like, you know, the differences, they're huge differences, um, big, big differences. You know, Yiriyahu in the Greek translation is different significantly. There are significant differences than in the Hebrew. Um, um, there are significant differences in Sacred Daniel. Did it continue to grow in the Greek tradition, like almost like expanding and growing and interpreting? So what, one thing, not to go back to my, my, my third point, the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes exhibit affinities 
in the Hebrew text with what we see in the Septuagint, and sometimes affinities with what we see in the Greek text. What this says is that some of the, t the textual traditions continue to be open and interpreted. Midrash didn't only happen external to the text in the Second Temple period. People permitted themselves to write and to rewrite text. That is to rewrite to rewrite sacred varim with lots of interpolation and growth and expansion. We have these things called reworked Pentateuch. They're homash that almost inserts what you would call targumet aside in Hebrew in the text. Or um, it's as if, if you were reading and teaching right to your child and you added pieces in. And sometimes the text grows at the beginning at the end, sometimes it grows within, and sometimes pieces are missing. So part of what I want to say is that the Septuagint, this is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Septuagint also helps us see how Jews were thinking about their own texts. What do they need to explain? What do they need to gloss? What do they need to apologize for? Were there sections that perhaps they were uncomfortable with and either needed to apologize or delete or skip over? You know, um, Chazal say, the rabbis say, that there are parts of um, Chumash even that are read and not translated. Um, there's some awkward moments, not many, a few, um, ge generally connected to um, sexual uh, misconduct. Um, um, and, um, and I think there are right, contemporary examples of this with our school. Thank you. And I think that's important and relevant. But that's the beginning, and I can actually give you names of scholars that are working on this. But that is a very different talk. You know, that would be a talk. Um, and examples about what the Septuagint is doing as an example of early Jewish interpretation. And, um, but it would presuppose, in some sense, yesterday's talk, where I said, extremes? Let's just look at it as an example of early Jewish interpretation. Because that's what it is. That's absolutely what it is. Um, and to think about it as a Christian construct is to misunderstand historically what's going on in the Jewish community. Okay, there were other questions. Of the woman who just asked the question stepped out for a minute, so I want to wait until she's back to re-ask her question. Um, was there anyone else? Yes. I saw a hand. Please, go ahead. I want to what Greek language transfer Sorry? What the Greek language language transfer What did you to language at that time? What was the language transfer? Greek, Greek. Which was it? Greek at that time? For the Alexandrian community, for sure. For Alexandria, Alexandria. Um, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I guess... I would say it's Aramaic okay, in Israel, well, yeah, um, and I would say that it's certainly Greek, even you know, imposed on the Egyptians, right, yeah. um, in Alexandria. Um, uh, yes, I think I would, I would say that. Yeah, and it's really important. I guess your question is that it's a question that's pregnant. I mean, yeah. So I think I, look, I don't think it had a big audience. This is okay. one direction in which your question is going. The other question, kind of, I sort of vetted in your question is um, going back. This is the same matter that Fred raised yesterday, right? How important is it for the non-Jewish community to have access to this, as the letter of Arisia says? How important is it for the Jewish community to have access to their texts in um, in Greek? Um, and this is, this is, I want to re-ask that question when this, when this lady comes back, but because that's part of the question she was asking about Lashon HaKodesh, about Hebrew. But let me turn to your question. Yes. You know, what comes to mind is something more recent, I guess, the Senna Yes. It's done in Yiddish, where, like, when you read it a little bit, it's like, it has Midrash and Tanakh, and it will, you know, I don't know what it's made, but it's a little bit, but it also, it's a 
It's a great it's a great example. I mean I know that I know that Santa Elena, I'm not working as a scholar, but my grandmother who lived with us for twenty five years read every Shabbos, all Shabbos. I know it well and it's a very uh, it's a beautiful example of this genre, you can call it a genre, of what's called rewritten Bible. And that's exactly the perfect kind of segue into what I was just speaking about a moment ago. Um, re examples of rewritten Bible are considered already present in our Tanakh. This is actually very relevant to the question of Hellenism and Judaism, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back at the end of my answer to your very important question. The rewriting of text as a way, remember what I said at the beginning of class today, as, as actualizing or as um, making alive or vital earlier earlier texts. So certainly, Debrei Hayamim is understood to be a rewriting of Shmuel and Malachi. And this is a, a, a very clear. The Book of Jubilee, how many of you have heard of Jubilee? Yeah. A little bit? Um, and it's not a, in any stretch of the imagination a normative text. Um, Lauterbach, a very, he had his translation of the Chilta over here, was a very important scholar of rabbinicus at JTS. He suggested that perhaps Jubilees represented or reflected the lost Midrash Midrash which we don't have, because in it are all of these interpretations that we find later on in Chazal. But it was preserved by monks, and we know that it was written in Hebrew um, by Second Temple Jews because we have 17 copies of it. Um, at incomplete copies, but 17 copies of it amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was a really, really important text. We never knew for sure um, that it was written in Hebrew. In fact, it was Hebrew and Aramaic, but we know it's written in a very good biblical idiom. It's great. I mean, we have access to it now. Um, uh, most of the manuscripts we have are actually Ethiopic from later Christian monks. What's that written? Ethiopic. Oh, yeah. Um, so rewritten Bible, rewriting, part of what we're seeing here, so that's Shana's question too, I'd like to suggest, that when we're looking at translation, we're also looking at rewriting and transformation. That's a little bit different than standing at the beginning of Sacred Great Sheep and saying there's a, a, a first law and a second law, like the Book of Jubilee says, and rewrites parts of Genesis and includes all sorts of things that we are not in, in, in Great Sheep, right? Um, but Part of what um, part of what we're seeing here is the rewriting, the translation, the actualization, and the interpretation of our text um, in in um, new contexts, in new iterations, in new linguistic registers. And this absolutely goes to the matter of preservation and survival. Your name, Becca. So Becca, um, let me ask Becca's question now because I think it's followed up. That, that's the beginning of an answer. Your, your question is a big question. I work a lot on the written Bible, and I challenge whether or not it's actual category. The point about Sadarena, let me just come back to that for a second, is that I think this continues. It's sacred. Josephone is a kind of a big incorporation of Josephus stuff. But the, the writing and the rewriting of biblical text does not become the main way in which interpretation is preserved, but it continues to be a part, um, a part of how, and translation, part of how Jews survive and in, you know, in, incorporate our past into our present. And in fact, my little anecdote about children who come back and say, is it shot or is it trash? You know, part of the Midrash says is um, a child's version of something like rewritten Bible. And I actually don't think it should make us angry. I think we should appreciate the genre, um, but also understand that it's just that, that it's alive to interpretation, going back to the matter of vitality.
which I think is not only lost on scholars, I think it's also lost on Jewish community that somehow think that what you want is what's actually in the text as opposed to the way in which we fill the tradition in. And that's part of what's going on with Hellenism and Judaism. That <laughs> so your question, you, you asked four different questions, but there was one central one that you said that you were going to ask for the, oh, our community okay. today. My, my question was, um, was the translation of Tanakh into Greek essential to the survival of Judaism throughout history, or was it essential to the survival of that particular Jewish community during that time period? Um, right, so... Um, so I, I think I think it's a really really way it's a different it's a, I'm thrown off because it's a slightly different question than the one that I heard you ask earlier but but that's fine so one way so the, the question is was it essential for is it like all these other moments in time where we translate right and is that the way you receive something like the letter Mauritius do you want to read it in conjunction with the Bubu Rosenzweig account of needing to translate the Hebrew text into German in order to survive. Um, and I think that's a very interesting question. And by the way, that's why I mentioned Herman Cohn, right? I mean, it's about symbiosis. I don't think we can say that much for Philo, the first part of your question, the first part, the alternative A, um, because they weren't citizens, um, they weren't really integrated into Greek culture. We know, we know that. Um, um, but there's signs of beginning of integration, and I think you're absolutely right, and this also um, coheres really beautifully with something that Dan said uh, also during the break, that that there's this, um, there's this ongoing um, appeal on the part of German Jewish philosophers and thinkers back to Athens to Jerusalem, or identifying, if you will, to that diaspora. It's also the case that Jews were admitted into the academy often through the door of classics. Uh, you know, as classicists, as people that had studied, you know, antiquity. That's also um, one of the ways in which. Um, it's one of the ways in which Jews found their way to Philo in the Renaissance, and then subsequently, um, the, 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 there's a group, a community of Jews working on Philo, which is a nice, because you need a Jewish education and you also need a, um, a classical education in order, in order to um, read him. And this is why classicists don't really read him, because you need to understand what Jewish interpretation is in order to make sense of him. You also need classical, really good classical education. Plato's all over the text. He's citing it implicitly all the time, and he cites our traditions explicitly and implicitly. Like um, there's a student, I think he's taught here from time to time, Shlomo Zafir, and he um, he just gave a paper about how Ezekiel, Yechetzel, all over Philo, but not cited explicitly. It's implicit. Mm -hmm. Citations are implicit. It's a really nice article, actually. Mm -hmm. um, okay, um, th that part. With the other part of your question is, did it really help Jewish survival? Um, <laughs> You know, I struggled to answer it before, and I'm not sure what to do. I don't think it compromised Hebrew as Hashem HaKodesh. I think his vision, like Herman Cohn's vision, ultimately failed. I mean, it's not, you know, if there was a project to grade-side, if you will, um, Judaism, <laughs> I, in a way, we've been integrated and we continue to integrate Western tradition in our work and in our thinking. Um, the notion of Tabnit, for example, a Platonic notion of, you know, the ideal form and copy certainly continues to get used in Kazal. There are many concepts that are, one could say, are Greek, but I think, um, I don't think, I wouldn't say, no matter how much I like Philo, that he saved Judaism. And I'm not sure he gave Judaism like he gave it all up to Christianity either. I don't think that's a fair account. What he does is he preserves 
almost like a crystallized or fossilized moment in time where Judaism engaged Hellenism really deeply. And I think he does that in ways that I, I don't feel as much in Josephus because of how deeply philosophical or philosophically engaged I was. Um, but, you know, Josephus does other things around rhetoric and writing and copying and absorbing tradition and also serving Rome. That's also part of his, his narrative, serving Rome. I hope, I hope these are excellent questions. I, if, if there any, are there any more questions? Because if not, I, I, how much time do we have? I wanted to ask you, I, I have my own list of questions for you um, about Aristius. Let's see. How are we doing with time? Um, we have 10 minutes. Um, um, I, I, I think I'm going to, hmm, I'm thinking that um, I, I, I want to leave a little bit of time tomorrow as well, because um, we're going we're gonna to take 10 minutes now, but t tomorrow in the, the latter part of the conversation, I also want to encourage you to bring the letter of Aristius into the conversation, because we're not going to do, uh, we're not going to have adequate time today. Um, I guess one thing to do is um, to reserve the place of prayer and inspiration um, for that conversation. Translation as a product of prayer and inspiration is one of the themes I'd like to come back to tomorrow because we're talking about prayer and exemplarity, praying and the, the perfect um, ideal figure as a way of thinking about what happens to Judaism in the hands of Greek culture uh, or how it absorbs Greek culture. And, so in that context, we're going to talk about Moshe, we're going to talk about Abraham. Did you notice anything in the reading, what you did today, whether it's differences in Josephus or differences in the letter of Aristius from Philo's account that you wanted to mention? Yes, please. Incredible, incredibly interesting point. And we've, I've not mentioned this once for the last two days. I'm thinking a lot about an essay, which I'm not teaching during this winter session, called On Joseph by Philo. And there you see that. So what you see in the letter of Aristius, there's a brand new commentary by Diane Ben Rice, who also has highlighted this point, that in the letter of Aristius, um, you get Judaism kind of returns to Egypt, the very thing that the rabbis tell us not to do, that she's not returned. Right, it returns to Egypt and it rethinks the narrative about the law and about the Exodus um, in terms, and of course the earlier narrative of Jews are enslaved, somehow as though we've returned to Egypt. And it's really weird. It's um, you know, it almost reminds you of like, you know, early accounts of Jews returning the Maccabee as a central figure in the formation of the Dinah Israel. Because we return and we relive our history there, but it's a, it's nineteen forty-eight. Right? And, and here, this is hundreds of years later, and it's remembering life in Egypt. It's remembering the deportation of the kings, although that's not explicit. Um, uh, but it's also remembering a time when there was a Mishnah of Manalach, right? In the Do you want to say a bit more? I, I think it's a great time. And part of what we see is the story of um, Yitzhak trying somehow retold after. I mean, it's also a, a weird apologetic. I did talk about this in, on the Decalogue. When Philo's kind of struggling, trying to figure out like what to do with Egypt as a polis. Right? This is a place of slavery. It's not a place of freedom for Jews. And suddenly it's a place where they're able to survive and thrive. And I mean, they're wealthy like Joseph was wealthy. His family is. Mm -hmm. 
and they're thriving and they have an access to Paro in the way that they have access to the Caligula. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot to be said about the Joseph stuff. I'm actually writing a paper right now on the Joseph stuff, so it's particularly interesting to me. But I think you're absolutely right that that's part of the narrative theme. You do. There's a larger. Um, the, the, um, maybe you didn't get a copy of it. Um, I, I can make another copy for you. Um, we, we had um, um, so I, we, we printed out a copy. No, no, no. We, we had the.
part of what I wanted you to see was different than the Josephine versus the Pylonic narrative of, of, the, of, the, of the story of transition. Okay, thank you.